as a Brit in a post-Brexit world, which sounds like a song, a really bad one, actually. I found Europe, Europeans, European regulators much more proactive in engaging me as an industry participant here in the UK, uh, both before and after Brexit. So really interested to, to hear about approach to the UK. So today I'm really happy to welcome on the Metaverse show two people, both from Ripple, who are really helping drive forward uh, a more kind of friendly, constructive policy framework across different jurisdictions for the wider Web3 industry, hot off the back of a white paper that they've released specific to the UK. But we're going to speak more generally first. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on more generally in Web3 and, of course, in the world of Ripple, the US and the SEC. Um, so uh, we have uh, Susan Friedman, who is Ripple's head of policy, uh, and we have Andrew Whitworth, EMA policy director. So uh, some a Brit and somebody from the US. Um, welcome to the show. I'm actually really excited to talk about this, not just because of the UK perspective, although that is something obviously very close to my heart. It's where we're headquartered. Uh, it's where I'm personally based. Um, and it's something I feel is a massive missed opportunity that's bothered me for some time. So it's, it's great to have your backing. Uh, and we'll get into why specifically the UK. But let's just zoom out a little bit, talk more generally um, about what we're seeing globally um, from a kind of policy regulatory environment um, maybe we start, Susan, with you. Maybe quick intro is to, to kind of your role. That, I mean, it should be fairly self-explanatory, but it'd be good to know kind of the, the remit and scope. And then we can kind of talk a little bit about how you're seeing things globally. Absolutely. And thank you again for having us here today. Um, I, I work on, I am head of policy at Ripple. I work on global policy issues uh, with a focus on the US. And we focus, um, our goal is not only to get our products live in various jurisdictions, but we also actively look to foster global frameworks um, that work together so that uh, at a macro level, crypto is able to thrive so that we are not creating walled gardens in specific jurisdictions. Um, and in terms of what we're seeing with respect to how different countries are moving in this space, I think there's been a lot of positive momentum. So Singapore uh, is one example. The EU just passed Mika, which will go into effect in 2024. Uh, we, Brazil just passed a crypto regulatory uh, framework for its jurisdiction. There are several legislative proposals within the U.S., and I think what you're seeing is this momentum towards um, building frameworks, creating clarity, giving industry the guideposts that it needs to be able to build in a responsible way while also protecting consumers. And, and that's momentum that we are looking to be part of and to foster and what drove in part uh, the release of our UK paper. Do you think that we're finally reaching a point where there is a degree of harmonization across jurisdictions because previously it's been quite fragmented europe seems to kind of cut its own path i think for a long time people were expecting leadership from the us that didn't come 
Um, and so there was very fragmented activities in different jurisdictions, whether it's Switzerland, um, uh, Singapore, or, or other environments. Is there finally some harmonization and coordination? I think we're slowly moving in that direction. I do think that the gaps in regulatory frameworks is what allowed ultimately something like FTX to happen. It's that regulatory arbitrage that takes place. And while we're not advocating for one single set of um, one framework to be implemented globally, we do think that there is a need for the harmonization that you touched upon to be implemented uh, more consistently across more jurisdictions so that you do not have companies seeking to take advantage of the gaps. The U.S., as you pointed out, really has not moved as quickly as we think it needs to in this space. And we're hopeful that 2023 will be a breakthrough year. Um, but there is still work to be done, though I do think the trend is ever so slowly moving in the right direction. Well, that's that's good to hear, reassuring. Um, so if we look at the, the U.S. context, obviously a lot, a lot going on for Ripple and just the industry more more generally post FTX. From the outside here in the UK, personally, I mean, we're a, we're a global organization. We have lots of people in the US, but looking from the outside in, um, it's always felt like crypto is quite a politicized issue. There was very different perspectives on the industry as a whole, depending on whether you're speaking to the Democrats or the Republicans. Is that, is that true? Is it, um, you know, what's your perspective on that? I think when you look at it from a U.S. perspective, what's been really encouraging is that there has been the, the level of the dialogue between two years ago and now, uh, when the Congress started, the 117th Congress started and when it's ending is, is night and day. There is just a much more sophisticated sophisticated level of the industry. And what I also think is encouraging is that you're seeing bipartisan support. So for every major crypto bill that was introduced over the past two years, there has been a bipartisan co-sponsor. Um, those bills, some of them are flawed. They haven't gotten all the way through the legislative process. But I do think that there is it, there is a more nuanced dialogue happening with respect to um, industry. And I think, though, on that same note, there's more work to do. A lot of um, it, it becomes difficult to cut through the noise when you have an incident like FTX to make clear that crypto is not just speculation. There are certainly consumers who speculate, but that is uh, a small piece of the activity taking place. There are a lot of different use cases for crypto. There are a lot of different players in the industry, including ourselves. We are B2B, we don't market to consumers. And making those distinctions clear so that you can get the right policy frameworks in place, I think, is really key for us, for other industry actors. And again, part of the reason why we wanted to put forward the paper that we did in the UK um, outlining our policy vision. The conversations that we're having, and again, it's surprising how many institutions actually do understand the difference between what happened with FTX and and is that representative or not of the wider industry. One of the big distinctions that we we always try to make in, in how we communicate is this distinction between crypto and Web3. You know, crypto being how people may speculate on the value um, of Web3, but ultimately Web3 is the technology applied at an industrial level, at a use case level. Um, maybe just to kind of close off 
um, on, on the US context. Obviously, you're in the middle of a process with the SEC. I think there was something uh, tweeted yesterday by uh, by your CEO. Um, what can you say about where you are in the process? Um, and um, how much is that kind of public communication through the medium of Twitter part of that process? Twitter um, certainly has its audience and and there is a lot of news and information that happens on Twitter that I think is um, has helped keep industry informed and, and um, enrich the debate, if you will. It is not the only means of communication though, by far. And in terms of what we see for the lawsuit, the briefs in our summary, uh, our motion for summary judgment uh, were all filed, both the SEC and Ripple's. We're hopeful for a decision from the judge in the first half of 2023. And we think that we have the right side of this argument. I think what's notable, um, we had multiple companies and groups file in support of our case. 14 different amicus briefs or friend of the court briefs were filed which is unprecedented at this stage of litigation. Usually those sorts of filings happening, happen at the appellate level. So I think the fact that we did have such a strong show of support um, demonstrates that the industry recognizes how significant the case is, that there is a, a chance for a significant decision to define how you draw those lines in the US between commodity and security. I do think, though, fundamentally, that this isn't an issue that should be decided by the courts. Ultimately, what you really want is either the regulators to engage in rulemaking or Congress to engage in and legislating. And what's encouraging on the congressional front is that we have leaders from multiple parties and multiple committees of jurisdiction calling for legislation, putting forth good faith efforts to try and reach the, the right outcome. That includes Chair Maxine Waters, Rep. Patrick McHenry, Rep. Emmer, there are, uh, Senator Stabenow, Senator Bozeman, uh, there are, uh, Senator Gillibrand and Lummis. There are multiple allies, advocates that are looking to get to the right legislative solution. There's still work to be done. There's going to be a lot of activity in the next Congress, um, and we're hopeful that that will continue. At the same time, we believe that we're going to, um, we're optimistic for a good outcome in the, the SEC litigation. Um, and obviously we've got, I mean, this this show is, is really for founders. It has a broader audience than that, but a lot of founders listen to this at various stages from pre-seed all the way up to uh, mature networks. Um, for clarity, what would you hope the outcome is for founders, for the industry um, at the end of this process? Any decision or any decision in the case or any legislation by Congress that allows founders in the U.S. to understand how you draw a line between a token that is a security and a commodity is the ultimate outcome. Because at the end of the day, if you can't figure out who your regulator is, or whether or not someone is going to come in and file a suit against you, as the SEC has done multiple times over the past year with respect to different tokens in different contexts. But, but that's really the problem. The, the total lack of clarity and the fear that you are going to be brought in to face an enforcement action is what is going to keep the U.S. from really becoming hub for crypto innovation in the way that the UK aspires to be, in the way that I think we'll see 
the EU become? Because whatever you might think of Mika, having a single rule book, understanding who your regulator is, the requirements that you're you're expected to live with when you go into that jurisdiction, that's what affects your ability to grow and thrive in any market. And that clarity is sorely absent from the US regulatory landscape at the moment. So that's almost a perfect segue into to Andrew within his remit uh, in EMEA. Um, maybe we stay at EMEA level first before we drill down to UK. So um, you mentioned Mika. Um, I know many people on the one hand, as you say, welcome it because it's it's some form of framework directionally and a way of harmonizing across the region. On the other hand, they think some things in it are um, too restrictive, um, potential overreach. What's your perspective on on Mika at large? Yeah, I mean, look, it's as Susan just said. I mean, we we think Mika is good. It's definitely a step in the right direction. I think it's a marker globally for how jurisdictions can think about creating comprehensive crypto asset frameworks to provide the kind of certainty that businesses need um, to develop and to innovate and, and to be comfortable growing and, and providing providing their services to businesses and citizens. Um, depending on their business model across the jurisdiction. So the fact that Mika exists is good. The fact they did it, frankly, relatively quickly, both for the EU and other jurisdictions is good and impressive. Um, but you're right, you know, the devil is in the details. Um, Mika's particularly good for two things, which you both just touched on. Firstly, the common rulebook across the EU. Secondly, the ability to passport. So the ability to provide services across the EU from one member state. Both of these are very good things that will support the development of a harmonized or, or, or a single, let's say, a single um, crypto sector across the EU, which which will have benefits for business growth and for uh, activities provided to citizens. Um, but, you know, there is work to be done. You know, it hasn't yet been ratified by the European Parliament. Uh, that will probably happen in February. After then, then it becomes very much a question around the so-called level two agencies, so the European supervisory agencies, who will develop the technical standards and the actual specific requirements that will then be imposed on companies. And as you said, this is a very wide ranging, the scope of this um, framework is very wide. So there's the potential for lots of specific rules, um, which will need to be calibrated, frankly, and the calibration can be a difficult process and a long process. Um, but so far, I would say that the European policymakers, as, as actually policymakers in most jurisdictions, I would say, have been quite open to speaking to industry to at least learn industry's perspectives, understand how certain requirements might impact industry and how industry might respond in, you know, given given whatever requirements they would be. So in that sense, I think there's a lot still to come on making Mika real. Uh, but what there is so far is is good. And and I think Mika as as a as a whole, as I say, is a, a big step in the right direction. As a Brit in a post-Brexit world, which sounds like a song, a really bad one, actually, but a uh, song nevertheless, um, I found uh, Europe, Europeans, European regulators much more proactive in engaging me um, as an industry participant here in the UK, uh, both before and after Brexit. Um, so really interested to, to hear about approach to the UK. So um, I'm, I'm going to save you the rant, um, but for a very long time, I felt even pre-Brexit, you know, the UK could play a really important role in the context of the crypto industry, digital assets, given its financial services sector, given its professional sector that wraps around it, given it being the primary source of venture capital in Europe, 
you know, given it's media entertainment, you could, you know, the list goes on really. Now, of course, a lot of that's very much London centric, but nevertheless, um, a huge opportunity um, to be a leader in this space, both in terms of fungible, but then non-fungible assets as it goes into creative industries and gaming and media and entertainment. Um, but I guess in some ways, understandably, the UK has been somewhat distracted. Um, so, so I, I buy the why, I mean, it'd be good to hear from, from you why, you know, beyond what I mentioned, why specifically you've, you've uh, focused on the UK with this paper over any other jurisdiction. Um, but then secondly, why now? You know, why now do you think that the UK is ready, able to engage with this process? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with those two questions. I mean, I think the first thing to say is Ripple chose to make London or a London office a regional hub a couple of years ago, we have around 70 people based here now. That number keeps growing. Uh, we see a lot of opportunity in London. And it's for a lot of the reasons that you, you were mentioning around the deep history in finance, the access to skilled talent, uh, frankly, the openness of industry here, but also the wider policy and public culture um, to welcoming international businesses and international businesses to provide international services. So it's not just for the domestic market, but it's London as an international financial center. Um, obviously, for Ripple, a B2B company, as, as Susan said, that primarily focuses on um, cross-border payments, this is very important for us to have access to these kind of counterparties. Um, so that's why we've, let's say, on the business side, moved here. I mean, moving to the question around the policy, um, I mean, I think it's interesting that you say even pre-Brexit, perhaps the UK wasn't didn't want to be in the lead in this area. And that could even be because it has such a, a dominant financial traditional financial centre. And I think it's taken, what we've seen, I think, is it's taken a long time for industry, a traditional financial industry, to want to engage a crypto. And as soon as they have, they've quite appreciated it. And they're doing it in their own ways. And as, as you've both been talking about already, you know, the crypto sector is incredibly diverse. There are lots of different activities, different business models, different uses for underlying technology. And I think you, you talked about it in, in the sense of Web3 versus crypto. I, much more basically for me, it's a question of the technology versus the use case. And the underlying technology can can provide a lot of different use cases. Uh, and as more and more uh, financial incumbents have understood that, the more they've enjoyed partnering with companies like Ripple uh, or developing their own their own services on this. And I think we've seen a parallel um, evolution in the thinking on the on the public sector side from policymakers. Um, so that that's kind of for me, the context of, of what's happened this year in the UK. Obviously, the first half of this year, Rishi Sunak as Chancellor and John Glenn uh, in, as, as his minister, they made this big push to um, make the UK or develop the UK as a global crypto hub, as they put it. Um, that's great. That shift in ambition, that shift in political ambition is, is, I think, what you've been advocating for for a long time. I've read a lot of your tweets. Um, and and is something that obviously we, as a company that chose to make London as our, as our regional base or a regional hub, we welcome this a lot. Now, as you say, six months have happened with a lot of uh, high politics that's led to some delays. Um, but the fact that both those people are now in more senior positions can only be good uh, for the development of the policy framework that's necessary in the UK or will be necessary in the UK to achieve these political ambitions. So that's where we're coming from uh, or where we were coming from when we decided to write this paper. It's very much the political ambition is now there. The city is now there. What's missing? The policy framework. And just as uh, in talking about the US earlier, talking about the EU just now, you need to have a stable, certain policy framework for businesses to be comfortable 
innovating, entering, and growing. Um, so we're advocating for the policy framework, or we're, we're saying what we think uh, from the industry point of view, the UK needs to do to create the policy environment that will allow business to thrive there. For us, there's three things. One is the comprehensive risk-sensitive uh, policy framework, which distinguishes between different risk pro profiles in the regulatory treatment of companies. This is an absolute given in the trad traditional financial sector. You think about the different rules based uh, given to a traditional bank, I don't know who, Barclays, versus a fintech company, versus a financial market infrastructure provider. This is, this is normal. Um, but somehow when we're talking about crypto, that distinction gets forgotten. Um, there's a real risk in doing that because you end up regulating the technology rather than the business. And this is something people say they don't want to do. And it has the quite strong possibility of um, stifling future innovation because it locks in the current technological frontier. Uh, and particularly in a, in a sector like uh, crypto, crypto sector, Web3, you know, where things move so quickly, that, that can actually be a real problem, particularly if other countries or other jurisdictions are not. So first, we need to have this risk-based, comprehensive crypto, crypto asset um, regime. Secondly, to, to manage this properly, we need uh, regulators to have adequate resources. And I would say my interactions with regulators in the UK have been incredibly positive. They want to do the right thing. They're intelligent people who are trying to engage as well as they can according to their mandates on the topics at hand. But these are difficult and there are lots of different topics and they still have the day job of managing the traditional financial sector. So I don't see any other solution to just, they need more resources and they need to be comfortable spending resources on this sector. Uh, in order to achieve the ambitions that they, in their various public speeches, say, and that the government says it wants, um, and, and part of that resourcing is is improved coordination because there has been, and again, I'd say less over time, but in the past in the UK there have been some mixed messages around how welcome this whole sector is in the UK. You know, it's great that the political side is saying they want it. It's good that in some circumstances, with the correct risk mit mitigation. Some parts of the regulatory system are comfortable with it, but then other parts are still uncomfortable. And you think, well, hang on, you know, we, we need to sort this out somehow. Um, and then the third thing I think, which is, well, which we call for, or which we, we argue is necessary to underpin all of this sort of a foundation uh, in the UK is improved public education, pro public discourse around, around uh, the crypto asset sector. But frankly, as a very first step, it's recognizing the diversity of the sector, the different actors, the different uh, institutions, different models, activities. Uh, and then I think from there, everything else uh, flows. But without this improved discourse for the media, from public sector, from the way industry talks uh, about ourselves, um, I, I don't see that we're going to be able to get to a sustainable place where, in, in a sense, I see that the, or for, for me, the good outcome in the UK is that the crypto sector will be considered and treated um, and have the same sort of uh, regulatory engagement as the traditional financial sector does. There are political uh, differences around the benefits of finance, just as there should and will be over crypto. But everyone recognizes that it's an important part of the UK economy. It's an important part of uh, UK society. It has benefits for citizens. It also has some things, some risks that need to be mitigated. And I don't see any difference between the crypto asset sector in its financial sense um, to traditional finance. So that that's, I think, where we can get to um, if if the UK um, you know, seizes the opportunity that it has kind of right now to frankly catch up with where some of the rest of the world has got to. Yeah, so how do we make that case? Because, I mean, um, like you, I've probably seen different, uh, different parts of the UK government or regulatory bodies uh, both communicate and interact in different ways. So I've had, you know, there have been moments where the FCA or equivalent of the SEC has been incredibly proactive. They created sandboxes. 
I know that they were on, they were just about to publish some really interesting reports and then it was pulled by say treasury or, uh, and obviously we know bank of England generally has been incredibly, um, cynical of of the 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 crypto industry whilst pursuing cbdc uh various initiatives so it it looks very muddied um and that's with one party that's been in power for almost two decades it's not even about you know different parties it's just with within um one well-established party had a significant majority for some time now as we look forward you know elections on the horizon you know possible um for the first time that we might have a different government a labor government um i've absolutely no idea of labor's perspective on digital assets i i can imagine what it might be uh, that might be presumptive of me but um how do we how do we create an argument here that can can cross the divide um and put in place things that can allow businesses like you like us and our portfolio of 185 startups now choose the UK as a home for the next decade and want to invest in that environment with a degree of surety that whilst you can't remove all the all the other risks in this space, that the regulatory overhang isn't going to be one of them, right? Regulatory ambiguity isn't going to be one of them here. Yeah, look, um, so on your very last point there, I mean, you're exactly right. What's your your startups, what other businesses need, including Ripple, is is regulatory certainty, and that's why I think um, an overarching crypto asset framework in law is what's needed. The individual requirements and rules can and should be and will, I'm sure, be calibrated according to the individual business model, risk type, activity, or risk of activity, as it should be, and that can change over time as as people see whether they work or don't work are too heavy or not heavy enough. That's fine, but the framework itself should be stable. And I think, to be honest, I'm quite optimistic. So I think that's what's coming in the financial services and markets bill that's currently going through Parliament. You know, it was really welcome that they added in last month, I think, the um, definition of crypto assets and brought that into the regulatory perimeter for the FCA. What I'm expecting to see after that and when the next um, public consultation comes out, which could be this week, could be early next year, um, on, on the future crypto asset framework, is some kind of uh, secondary legislation, a statutory instrument that hangs off that law, kind of creating this broad, overarching, stable crypto asset framework and giving the FCA the powers or telling it to use its powers to create the calibrated details underneath that. I think that is what's going to happen. I hope it's what's going to happen. Uh, so that will address your your sort of bu- your business certainty point, or hopefully should. I mean, on, on your kind of broader, more original point, uh, I agree with you. Well, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen a huge difference, a bipartisan difference in the UK between the way different parties uh, look at the sector. Uh, as in, I don't think this is a, a party political question. Um, I think it's a trend over time. And I'd say it's a trend over time that has become more nuanced, so more um, positive about some of the benefits rather than purely negative towards the sector. Uh, and I think that's been mirrored across both parties and amongst uh, regulators and, um, and and government. Um, but I think, you know, the, you, the, the way to address people's concerns or the questions is to think about what their mandate is. You know, the Bank of England's mandate is very clear. It's financial stability and the safety and soundness of traditional banks. The FCA's is consumer protection. The parties obviously interested in, in protecting their constituents, or sorry, the MPs of the parties should be. Government wants to do all that while also developing the economy of the UK. So it's, it's, it's going to where people are. It's talking to them on what they care what they care about. 
Now, that doesn't mean having different messages because we don't have a different message. I think everyone, frankly, agrees a stable crypto asset framework will be good for businesses to provide them the certainty. It should be risk sensitive to provide protection to consumers and financial stability, market integrity, while encouraging and enabling growth. Everyone can get behind that. And then the individual sort of rules uh, get developed by the individual regulators in their space, of course, need to be calibrated towards their their stakeholders, towards their, their industries and sectors. Um, but I think it's I think it's quite doable for us as an industry to go forward with that same message to different people, saying, "Look, you're particularly prepared about consumer, particularly uh, concerned about consumer protection. You're particularly concerned about financial stability. Here's how what we're doing interacts with your concerns, um, and and that should be done through the basis of a transparent and, as I say, stable um, kind of risk sensitive crypto asset framework." Jamie, I would just add in there quickly that the the advantage too that the UK has at this point is that it is not the first mover. They have frameworks that they can look at for best practices. So they can see Mika, they can look at what Switzerland did, they can look at what Singapore did, they can look at what Japan did and adapt as appropriate for um, the specific jurisdiction. And I think when you pair that with the UK's reputation as being a hub for fintech, I think I saw an article today that said the UK has attracted more, London has attracted more investment this year than New York or Silicon Valley. I mean, you you have the right inputs to get to a, a great outcome with respect to regulatory clarity. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point, actually, that um, the UK has the advantage of being able to see the competitive landscape and, and see its weaknesses um, and, I guess, draft quickly, like create policy relatively quickly compared to the US, compared to Europe, right? The hoops that the challenge in creating any um, frameworks in a European context is, I mean, crypto moves so quickly, you then have to mobilize any number of different states uh, almost uh, uh, to come to a, a singular decision um, versus a singular jurisdiction, um, whether it's, you know, Dubai, Singapore, or the UK, it has that advantage and it now can see how the flops landed before it, it chooses to play its hand. And I think the big opportunity, which is what we've tried to do, is, is to make the case for GDP. Because as you say, ultimately, um, everybody needs growth now, not just the UK, but perhaps especially the UK, um, given how things are looking. Um, and you know, clearly, if you can look beyond just very narrow financial use case, which is already uh, large, and extend that to the wider web, why wouldn't you want to be a global hub for the next phase of the web and all the GDP growth that's going to come. So um, maybe it's on us to do a, a, a collectively a better job of making that argument in, in hard uh, economic terms. Just one final point quickly before we close off. Uh, very grateful for your time. I know the audience would have found it uh, really useful. Um, you, uh, Andrew, referenced um, a little bit earlier that there's some wider um, changes uh, in financial markets and, and how they're treated it happening in the UK. And I believe that there's potential, um, one of the potential outcomes is, of that is that pension funds can begin to be a bit more active. They can take more risk, um, uh, both in terms of the extent, but also the breadth of investments that they can make to be a little bit more on par with uh, the US or Canada. I know 
forged uh, a path here. And some people think that that means that that could include exposure to, to digital assets, virtual assets. I don't know if you've got any particular insights into that. Um, to be very honest, I don't have any insight into that at all. Um, I oh, stop the interview there, then, Andrew. Yeah, right. So, what, no, what no, no, I mean, there's a. Everyone looks at the cost of regulation. Um, we can talk about the public policy benefit of regulation, like we have done. There are also commercial benefits to regulation, which is the increased trust. Now, normally we talk about that in terms of consumers trusting regulated institutions more. Um, and that's true. And that's a good thing because they know that they are properly supervised, they're properly run, and, and usually there are some sort of safeguards if something does go wrong. Um, businesses obviously also prefer to deal with regulated uh, entities for frankly the same reason. Um, but that also means that their assets can then, use, well, depending on the individual law, of course, but uh, the assets of a regulated institution are in a sense, given preferential treatment over assets of non-regulated institutions, that's kind of the point of regulation. Um, so I don't have anything specific to say to your question, but that as as, as regulation in this space develops and as firms more and more get licensed in this space and their activities come within the regulatory perimeter, then you would expect them to be treated just like any other potential um, instrument. So we should expect to see that and we should hope to see it. As I say, I think Breaking down the distinction between finance that relies on crypto assets versus finance that relies on traditional financial rails and instruments um, should be the endpoint, and and or should ideally be the endpoint. If not, that's because there's something in the way, some regulatory thing in the way that says we need to make a fundamental distinction between similar activities based on the technology they use. And I think that would be a real mistake. Um, people in pub public officials, you know, policymakers have said in I think every country they don't want to do that. Um, there is still a risk at every step of the way that um, people, you know, lose lose track of what they're doing and drop the ball and 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 end up doing that. So it's on us in industry to keep making the case, saying what we're doing is the same as what they're doing. You're very comfortable with that. You should be comfortable with us, given given that you understand and and appreciate how how the sector as a whole operates, is regulated, and 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 can can be managed from a public sector point of view. So let's just close off. I mean, you could both answer it or just one of you. Do you think that the whole FTX thing, um, do you think that set us back? Or do you think it's actually accelerated the conversation that we need to have and, and the endpoint that we need to get to? Can I, so maybe if I answer and then Sue, you can, you can tell me, you know, correct me. Um, <laughs> I actually think that the crypto winter earlier this year is the more salient thing. I think FTX, so far as I understand it from everything public, seems to have just been a fraud, and fraud can happen in many different industries under many different technological bases. Uh, it's obviously bad. Obviously, it's bad for the reputation of an industry because it all gets bucketed together. Uh, but actually, I think the big change came with, as I say, the crypto winter when it, that started earlier this year. Not necessarily a bad change in the sense of um, industries' conversations with regulators. My take is beforehand during the boom, um, industry didn't necessarily feel it needed to engage properly with regulators. It didn't want to be that professional and that not every actor wanted to be as responsible as it could. Um, and regulators, I think, got quite defensive because they saw something going on that was, to be quite honest, out of their control and they didn't necessarily understand. I think what the crypto winter did actually is reset that. So we're now both sides are actually operating or working at the same pace and more or less at the same place. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's easier to have a constructive, professional uh, conversation between industry and policymakers than it was, I would say. Now, FTX 
is bad and bad for the reputation of everyone. But I think that reset has has maintained despite that. I think I, I agree with with Andrew. I do think um, from my perspective, what FTX has done is really highlighted the need to have regulatory frameworks under which centralized exchanges like FTX have to register and be subject to oversight. And the need for that regulation to happen globally so that actors cannot take advantage of the gaps and and operate in jurisdictions where there are fewer controls, uh, less oversight, uh, things that um, things that would have prevented uh, this from happening to begin with. If and and a good example of that is that the U.S. arm of FTX was registered with the CFTC and did not does not have the same issues that the parent company did, the international entity did. Um, that said, I do think FTX has made it more difficult uh, in the short run, and I do think this will resolve over time. But to make clear that distinction that there are different actors in the space, that crypto is not only used for speculation, that there are many different flavors of the industry, and that those um, distinctions need to be treated with some care. I think we're going to get there. I think the FTX debacle has muddied the waters a bit, but I'm optimistic for um, some good outcomes and some good policy outcomes in 2023. That's a great way to end. Um, thank you both for your time. Just quickly, how can people find the paper that you released? And also, are there any industry bodies that you work through that people can join to collaborate with you? The paper sits on our company website. Um, it's it's very easily Googleable. Uh, it's called Block by Block. Um, uh, we've also sent it all around Twitter and LinkedIn if you if you look for us. Um, and in terms of industry bodies, we do engage with a number in every jurisdiction we work in. Uh, in the UK, we're members of Crypto UK as well as the Digital Pound Foundation. Uh, also, payments association. Um, obviously, these are these are large and important industry bodies, so we, we do take part in those. And innovate finance, I will add uh, as well. Yeah. And in the US context, are you guys doing Digital Chamber of Commerce and Wall Street Blockchain Alliance, and any of those? We are members of the Blockchain Association and the Digital Chamber of Commerce, um, and I think that those bodies are important. Um, but I also think that industry is diverse. Part of the reason we wanted to publish this paper is because we think that we have something specific that we wanted to add to the dialogue. And I think um, it's important for every company, I think, where they have something specific to say to, to take that initiative on themselves. Great. Well, look, thanks again. I know the little guy out there, uh, the founder, um, you know, with life and death scenario at, at the moment in many cases looking into 23 can be reassured that we we have people with um organizations with the expertise of people like yourselves so uh, thanks for everything that you're doing for the space um definitely recommend people check out the paper um and then maybe we get you on later in the year to talk about uh, it could be mika or whatever else happens this kind of positive policy that you mentioned susan but thanks both for your time thanks for coming on thank you